in your Bible, on your phone. You're allowed to cheat off your neighbor. Look at Luke 9. And we're going to try to see three things here. First, that Jesus sins expectantly. Jesus sins expectantly. Second, Jesus provides abundantly. And finally, Jesus rules powerfully, right? Jesus sins expectantly. Jesus provides abundantly. Jesus rules powerfully. Let's go ahead and read the text together from Luke 9. It's a long one, 17 verses, but you can handle it. Let's read together the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together, that's the twelve disciples, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed as the disciples. And they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. That's John the Baptist. And by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said to himself, John the Baptist, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And then in verse 10. And on the return, the apostles told him, that's Jesus, not Herod. They told Jesus all that they'd done. <clears throat> and he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowd learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. That doesn't include all the women and children. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. And there's our story for today. The first thing I want you to note here, that in verse 1, we have the beginning of what I might call a sending spree of Jesus. He goes not on a spending spree, but a sending spree. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Because when he calls the 12 together, he gives them power and authority over demons and cure diseases. He then sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, if you flip over to chapter 10, one chapter fast forward, chapter 10, one has another sending where we read, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then when you get finally to the end of the book, Luke 24, 46, we see Luke's version of the Great Commission. Every gospel has their own version of the Great Commission. Here's Luke. It actually uh, involves two different sendings in the same commission. 
Here it's written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, since you guys, you disciples, saw what I did, now go out to all nations and proclaim the goodness of God and the glories of Jesus. And then in verse 49, he promises a final sending. He said, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem for it because it's coming. So this is a sending, 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 sending type of book. Now if we look back to chapter 9, verse 2, what I want to look at and what I want to note is that Jesus sends with two specific expectations. Hopefully you can see him there in verse 2. Jesus has specific expectations as he sends out his disciples. One of them is to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the other is to heal. Let's look at the first one. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. The first apostles had a mission. Their mission was to let the whole region know that the Messiah, the Christ, had come. The long-awaited priest ruler from the line of Melchizedek had arrived in Jesus of Nazareth. And rejecting him was serious business. Look in verse 5. Remember what Jesus told him? Jesus said, Whichever house you go to, wherever you go, if they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now that sounds weird. We don't do a lot of dust shaking from our feet these days. We don't shake like this. But in that culture, it was a common, uh, a common way to communicate something. Similar maybe, we shake our fingers today, right? Mom and dad, if you're if you're uh, seeing something you don't like, you're going to shake that finger, or you might even shake it this way, right? You're, you know how to shake in judgment. And this is what this was. This was a judgment shake. It's serious business. You are condemned if you reject the king who has come. Also, they were to go with healing. They were to go with healing. The expectation that Jesus had on his first disciples is that they would go with healing. And it's crucial to know that they weren't doing this on their own power. Instead, they had derived power from Jesus himself. So much of his mission included healing for one reason. It was to bear witness to his unique relationship to God himself. Right? Only God has the authority to reverse the curse of sickness and death. And so if Jesus is going around healing, 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 it's showing everyone that he is the great and mighty God. In fact, the Jewish people had an expectation of God coming among them and healing. You might remember uh, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, if you've read some of Isaiah before, you may have seen that Isaiah looked forward to a time when God would visit in a special way and begin miraculous healing. Look what Isaiah said in Isaiah 29. Verse 18 and 19. I'll just read it for you. In that day, Isaiah said, the day when the Lord comes, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. You can see that expectation of healing. Also later in Isaiah's book, chapter 35, 5 and 6, when the, when the Lord comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute, sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Jesus 
in healing through his disciples fulfilled this messianic hope. He is the God that heals. He's a healing God. Speaking of healing, this is my second attempt. So, remember it's Father's Day, so you're obligated to laugh. So I go to the doctor this week to get some blood work done. No big deal. I'm okay. I went to the doctor. This guy was weird. All he wanted to do was to suck blood from my neck right here. So if you ever go to Cary, do not go see Dr. Acula. Not bad? C minus? I'm getting a C minus from my son. Oh, failure from the back. My daughter's here. She knows the rules. Two thumbs up. Uh, try try this one. I, I did find something out. Why I visited a doctor. I found out that cats are better doctors than dogs. You know why? Dogs cannot operate the MRI machines, but cats scan. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. Thank you, Mercy. Two thumbs down. Great. <laughs> Oh, but more seriously, why does it matter that Jesus had this healing expectation and this proclaiming the kingdom expectation of his first followers? Why does that matter to us as followers today? First, you just need to see that Jesus is a sending God. Jesus sends you. You've got to get a grip on that by his nature he is a sending God. That must mean you must be a sending Christian. Now, corporately, we're doing this pretty well. You saw the video earlier. We took a corporate group of us. We went to Japan where we have sent a full-time worker to encourage her. Two weeks ago, John Pope, a pastor from Ohio, came back because we had sent him to Ohio to plant this church. We're going in July to Chicago to visit where someone we have sent is now a pastor. And in August, we're going to Turkey to visit with some other workers we have sent. So corporately, we're on the right track. But individually, I want to ask you these two questions. You can forget the jokes today, but remember these two questions. Here they are. Where is God sending me? Ask yourself that question. Where is God sending me? If you believe Luke at all, you have to believe he's ascending God. Where is God sending me? And secondly, who am I sending? Who am I sending? Because that's the nature of discipleship in the Bible. You're not to be the end of the road. If somebody tells you about Jesus and pours into you, you're not supposed to be the dot that ends the graph, right? You're supposed to, in fact, keep the graph going, maybe in multiplying type of way, maybe in exponential type of way, you're supposed to be pointing into somebody. So who are you sending in that sense? Where's God sending me? I don't know where he's sending you. It could be to your teacher at your kid's school. Maybe you're supposed to be involved in the PTA in such a way that you're the glory of Christ to the public school. Maybe you're sent to the hospital to care for patients there. You work in medicine. Maybe that's where you're sent. Maybe you're sent in your neighborhood to reach stay-at-home moms. Maybe you're sent in this neighborhood to reach kids from broken families. Ask yourself, where is God sending me? And who am I sending? Another great question. Who am I sending? Am I parenting 
to send my child into the world or to protect him from it? Am I parenting to send him one day into the world or just to shield him from the world? Can't I find just one person this year to mentor, to pour into, to disciple? Can't I, as a believer, find just one person to impact and influence with the gospel of Christ? Share with them all that I've learned in my journey with Jesus. Just pass simply some things along. Those are your questions. Where is God sending me and who am I sending? Also, what does our sending involve? Here's a fair question from this text. We know that your sending is going to involve proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming, teaching others about Christ. But here in this text, the original sending involved a lot of healing, right? In fact, one text in Matthew 4 23 says that Jesus went around in all of Galilee and he healed every disease and he healed every affliction. So what do we make of that? Should we expect that healing power to course through our veins? It's a legitimate question of the text. Well, one thing that you'll notice as you keep reading the Gospels, remember I said at the end, they each all have uh, sending statements. The most famous is probably in Matthew, what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Listen to how Jesus sends the broader church in Matthew 28. Listen to what he emphasizes. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he tells us how we're to make them. To make them by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The emphasis in that broader sending text is the emphasis of making disciples. Making disciples through bringing people, baptism, into the community, giving them community, and also making disciples, teaching them about Jesus. Healing isn't emphasized in there. Why? Well, it's not because God doesn't heal anymore. It's not because he doesn't gift certain people in the church with degrees of healing. It's not because you're not supposed to come to the pastors when you're sick and let us pray for you. It's because it seems... That now, in the church age, the major way that we are going to win people to Jesus is through disciple making. God is still going to heal, but our major call is disciple making. It's like the U.S. Open. If you're a golf fan, you know the U.S. Open is going on right now. The guy who wins it, he may shoot one or two eagles his whole round. But he isn't trying to shoot a hole-in-one or an eagle every time. He may get a couple But he's going to win by consistent accuracy. Over and over, steady accuracy on the golf course is going to win it. Christianity is not so much different. Steady disciple making is what's going to win the world for Jesus Christ. And be encouraged, this still involves healing, doesn't it? After all, what is sickness if it's not part and parcel of our broken creation? Don't forget, when Adam sinned, creation was snapped in two. Creation was broken. It's like a car that's a little off balance. It's just not running right. Therefore, normality is now sickness and death. It's a normal part of our experience. It's because of our spiritual rebellion, our spiritual sickness. We're all terminally ill inside because we rebelled against God. But oh, what great news it is to hear that Jesus has the cure. Jesus came to heal our greatest spiritual need. Remember what he said in uh, Peter, what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2? 
Peter connects our healing to the death of Jesus when he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. And then what did he say? By his wounds, you have been healed. And the forgiveness of our sins, as we believe and we turn toward the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is our foundational healing, the forgiveness of our sins. But it does point towards a broader physical healing that we will all experience when Christ comes back. We will have, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable bodies. So much so that John will write in Revelation 21.4 that Christ will come and wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any more pain. There will be ultimate healing. And God's going to heal some of us on the way. We are not guaranteed of complete healing until Christ comes back of body and soul. But God does send us out with the expectation to proclaim the healing offered in Jesus Christ of our sin sickness. So we have a uh, ascendedness to us today that includes proclaiming the gospel and the healing to be found in Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice from the text that Jesus provides abundantly. Jesus doesn't just send expectantly, but he provides abundantly. There's one real strange, curious feature of the text. Maybe you saw it in verse 3. It makes for an odd story. Basically, Jesus sends people on a short-term mission trip, and he says, here's what you need to take as your supplies. Nothing. Right? I don't know if I would want to go on that short-term mission trip. Listen to what he says. Verse 3. Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey. Remember, the disciples are supposed to go out from town to town to town on mission trip. Jesus says, by the way, take nothing. No staff, no bag, no bread, so no food, no money. Don't even have two tunics like a coat. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Don't make any plans about where you're going to stay. Odd way to send people out. And later, as I said, in the Great Commission, some of these stipulations are rescinded. But for this specific story, what in the world is God trying to teach when he says, you go, but you go with nothing? Well, he's trying to teach that in Christ, God plans to provide all that his people need. In Christ, God plans to provide all that his people need. They weren't supposed to take extra things. Christ's first followers were to be completely dependent upon God for God's provisions. You can also see this in the story of the feeding, right? The disciples were sensitive to what was going on, so they came to Jesus and said, hey, all these people crowded here, they're going to need to eat something. But Jesus here saw an opportunity to teach them a deep lesson. And so he created food miraculously. And look what uh, the author says in verse 17. Don't miss it. He said, everyone ate and they were satisfied. But then what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. They had leftovers he created so much. Not because they were going to pass it out later. Or stick it in the fridge for tomorrow. He made it to prove a point. Look at how much I provided for you. I can give you an overflowing 
abundance of what you need. Wasn't too long ago that uh, me and youth guy Eric, we went to a pizza place here in town. Frank Pizza is just east here down Newburn Avenue. It's a good place to eat. Closed on Sundays, so don't go today. But we were there eating pizza, and we ordered what we want. And I ordered the pizza with some meat and vegetables. And he's a veggie guy, and he ordered half the pizza to be veggie. And they brought it out at Frank, and they messed up the order. He didn't have his veggies right. And so I was like, oh, Frank, man, can you fix this? And lickety split, he brings out a whole new pizza. And so now I have two pizzas, and I'm thinking, man, that was quick. What in the world's going on? And what did that say about Frank in that moment? That he gave me a free pizza just because I was unhappy with it. Well, it says that he had plenty, right? He wouldn't have given me a free pizza if I was eating his only pizza. He had plenty of pizza. He has plenty. And he was attentive to our needs. He noticed when I called out to him. He responded. He was attentive. And his provision was rooted in something deeper. I didn't ask him his motivation. Maybe he's a compassionate guy. Maybe he wanted to reach out to us in such a way that I would stick and be loyal to him. Jesus Christ provides abundantly what we need. His provision is there. This text is screaming at you to believe that Christ has what you need. In fact, this text, as many others, is rooted in the Old Testament story. Once again, uh, this is the place where Moses had prefigured Jesus. If you think back to the old Exodus story, God's people were once in a desert previously and they didn't have anything to eat. And they cried out to God and God said, I'm going to provide for you abundantly all that you need with manna. You're going to wake up every day. You don't have to work for it. Manna will be there. That's the grace of God's provision. And we are to trust in that grace. Why does it matter? Well, consider the words of author Don Carson at this point. He read this text and he said this. He said, the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 is not that it just provides food. He is the food, right? In other words, through this miracle, Christ stands alone as the mediator of God's eternal provision. Jesus is the food on which we are to feast. And later, what's interesting is this same story is told in John 6. And in that story, what John writes about this very same incident, he writes that the next day, Jesus and the disciples, they wake up and they find a crowd of people. The same crowd has regathered, except this time they're looking for food. They have gathered to eat of physical food when Jesus is offering eternal food. And it's a great thing to see Jesus as the eternal provision in Christ, we have all that we need. And we're so thankful for that. Jesus responds to the crowd at this point in John, and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and I have what you need. He said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Jesus said he is the bread because he is necessary to reach God. He's not just an important ingredient. He's the entire recipe. Another author, Trevin Wax, says it like this. He writes at this point, 
I'm the bread of life is another way of saying, without my death, you cannot live. Just as bread is the essential element in the human diet, Jesus says that he himself is the foundation for spiritual life. Without his death, no one else can live. Why is this important? A lot of reasons. One reason is, when you leave these walls, just about everything in our media is going to tell you the opposite of this, right? If you stand here and proclaim, Jesus is essential for eternal life. If you're going to get to God, you need Jesus' sacrificial death on your behalf. If you say that, you're going to be looked at as a freak because it's not at all accepted in our culture. Just earlier this month, you may have seen that uh, President Trump was uh, trying to appoint his uh, White House budget manager, right? It's a guy that he tried to appoint. His name is Russell Vogt, and Russell Vogt is an evangelical Christian. And last year, Russell Vogt had written a paper in conjunction with his alma mater, Wheaton College, and he had written about the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. So picture this month earlier, there's a, he's going to a, a hearing before the Senate, and one of the senators, Bernie Sanders, brings out this paper that this evangelical had written, and he begins to throw it back in his face. And he says in front of everybody, again, the meeting is called to see if this guy can run a budget for the White House, right? But here's the quotes that he has. He says, you, Russell, you wrote that Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. And then Bernie asks, do you believe that this statement is Islamophobic? And then he says, there are other people of different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? And then further, he asked, you think your statement that they do not know God because they rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and that they stand condemned, do you think that's respectful of other religions? This is fun. Everybody, everybody in the nation could have watched this. Now, Senator Sanders dropped the ball on several points here. First, he wrongly assumes that asserting that Christ is the only way to God is disrespectful to others, right? He correlates that with showing fear of or a hatred for Muslims. In other words, according to Senator Sanders, if you proclaim this, you're a bigot. Secondly, he also wrongly assumes that holding to the doctrine of salvation through Christ alone disqualifies you from federal office. Bogus. But more central to our text today, he also assumes the premise that any road that you choose is a valid road to God. And he's going to hold on to that premise. In fact, after he spoke, another uh, senator came to the microphone who's a non-evangelical Christian, uh, Chris Von Holland of Maryland. He came up and he said this, not unpredictably. He said, now I'm a Christian... But part of being a Christian, in my view, is recognizing that there are lots of ways that people can pursue their God. Pursuing God, not the point that Bullitt was making. His point was legitimately finding God, or better said, being found by God. The only way to do this is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But not many people are going to back your play on this. So as Christians... We have some explaining to do. It was interesting. I read this quote of somebody commenting on that whole national conversation with Senator Sanders. Tim Keene said this. He said, the question from Bernie Sanders needs to be located in its appropriate discourse. 
Is it a theological question or a political social question? If it's the latter, a social question, Russell Voigt can reasonably say that he does not condemn Muslims. On the contrary, he loves them. But if it's a theological question, then Russell Voigt can say that he does not condemn anybody. The responsibility for justifying or condemning belongs to God alone. And this God so loved everyone, including all Muslims, that he sent his son to die for them. And that's our message that we must take. We have some explaining to do. We must now convince our neighbors, co-workers, children, and grandchildren that it's not hate speech. If we come and say the only way to the only God is through Jesus Christ. It's very loving to offer forgiveness found in Christ alone. But we have to back up the love behind that message with a love presentation. We have to back it up and be overly caring, overly careful, overly kind and joyous, lest we expose ourselves to this type of criticism. Only Christ provides abundantly for our salvation. Finally, from the text, one more thing. One fact that jumps out from the, day, the text today is that Christ has power and he exerts it over all creation. Christ exerts his power over all creation. He sends his first followers out to dominate disease. He sends them out to strip sickness of its sting. And they do it. And it's so striking that King Herod, who was the local ruler there, king is a generous term for him. He's more of a governor. But anyway, he hears about all this healing going on. And he says, I know what must have happened. It must be the superstar rock star prophet from the Old Testament, Elijah, who's come back to life because he's the only one who can do this kind of stuff. It wasn't Elijah, though. It was God in Jesus who had come to save his people. And what I want you to note here is that when Jesus sends his followers off, he's not handing off his power like he would hand off a football. What he's trying to do here is redefine what power is. What I want you to notice here is crucial. He's redefining what power is. Power to Jesus is not merely holding an office. It's not bossing people around or dominating others physically. If you watch the NBA playoffs, you saw power in the Warriors offense. It's not that type of power that Jesus is recommending here. Upcoming boxing match, Meriwether McGregor, That's not the type of power that Jesus is advertising. Instead, he has a different, much more beautiful type of power. He's manifesting his displays of creative power in helping the weak. In helping the weak. He's not making soldiers stronger in this text. Instead, he's caring for sick children, healing their cancer, anthrax, smallpox, all those things that ravished the ancient world. Jesus was going around through his followers, snap, snap, snap. Healing, showing off the greatness of God. And we see it in the feeding of the 5,000. He's there to help the hungry. They have a weakness. They're hungry. And Jesus meets it. Hungry people out in the badlands. And Christ could have done any number of things to show off his glory. Instead, he decides to feed them. His power is freeing. It's not oppressive. Unfortunately, this past Wednesday, we got a horrific display of oppressive power when one man, James Hodgkinson, planned to ambush 
a congregation, uh, congressman, a bunch of congressmen playing baseball, and he snuck up to the third base line, had a high-powered automatic rifle and a 9mm, and he just opened fire, injuring five people. But in that same horrific incident, you saw another type of power. Two policemen, they also had power, but they used their weapons to free, to save, and to serve, saving countless lives by taking down this threat. We must use our power to free people up, not to oppress them. One writer gets at this by comparing the power of Caesar and Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said. He says, who is more powerful, Caesar or Jesus? Because things are not always as they appear. Christians must have a radically different conception of power. Again, Christians must have a radically different conception of power. After all, when Jesus was crucified, it appeared that he was dying as a weak man at the hands of the strong. Pilate appeared to have authority and power. We have no king but Caesar, the people shouted. Caesar ruled by conquering land and subjugating people. But Jesus Christ conquered sin and death in the grave by suffering and by dying. By bearing the full weight of God's wrath towards the evil of the world and then rising again to new life. How about this for a Father's Day resolution? How about this? What if this year, Dad, you decided to view your home as a theater to show off the death, the dying, the suffering of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You do it by dying to your own desires to design your family chiefly around entertainment, materialism, the pursuit of the American dream. You begin to lead your family instead to use your time and your resources to creatively serve your community and lead your family to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. What would that look like? Well, I was talking to a brother not too long ago, informal conversation, and he was talking about some uh, marriage challenges that he was having. He said, man, i got this problem in, in my marriage. And I said, what's up? And he said, when I get home from work 6 or 6.30, every evening we have a pattern. My wife's been with the kids all day, and when I walk in, man, she slammed me verbally. With all my weakness, all my failures, why am I not doing this? Bam, bam, bam. And he said, and it's, it's in front of my twin daughters. And I'm just so scared that they're going to they're gonna be raised thinking this is what Christianity is. How can we change this? I think what he meant is, how can I change her, right? But in a rare spirit-filled moment of counseling, I said... What about this, dude? What about you absorb the blow? Right? What about you take the anger in yourself and you respond not in kind, not with evil, but instead you bless. Instead you forgive. So that your children who are always watching you, they grow up with that conceptual picture of who Jesus Christ is. He is forgiveness. He is power. They know good and well. You're heavier than mom. You could outshout her. You could push her around even. But instead, in that moment, you absorb it and you live out forgiveness for them. That is the power of Jesus Christ. I don't know what God has for you from the text today. But in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. 
And this is your time. This is your time to reflect. No one's going to be preaching at you during that time. It's you, the Word, and your God. Dwell on who Jesus is. He's a God who sends people expectantly. Where's He sending you? Who does He want you to send? Dwell on His abundant provision as seen in Jesus Christ. What are you doubting that God can provide? There's something, something there you don't think He can do. He has abundant provision in Jesus Christ and He rules powerfully. You are in a position of power over somebody. How are you going to wield that power this week? Are you going to wield it to help the weak, to free the weak, or are you going to wield it to oppress? All of these are good questions to discuss with God as we take the table. If you're a guest here and you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. We have tables up front, table in the back. Take the cup, take the bread, bring it back to your seat whenever you're ready. Take the supper with us all the while dwelling on the death of Jesus, what it means for us, and His future coming. So let's pray together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Dear God, we do pray. We pray a prayer of utter dependence, lifting our hands, saying, God, we need you to provide in Jesus and we worship you. We worship you as a providing God. And you, O oh Lord, are sending us with expectations to proclaim the gospel and proclaim the healing that is to be had in our deepest, darkest souls. The spots that we don't like to go, Christ can heal them and forgive us of our sins. God, I, I pray for those of us, especially the fathers, who have a unique place in the family and we have multiple opportunities to show off the power of Jesus Christ. I pray that it's a freeing thing. I pray that we free our families up to trust in a great and glorious God. So help us now, God, as we come to you humble, seeking to know more of you, broken, not perfect, but following Christ. Come to us now by your Spirit in the Supper. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.